0: Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, please grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We are going to be in the third chapter of the book of Philippians. We're gonna be picking it up in verse 12. And it was interesting, earlier this week, um, Kristen, my wife, asked me, she said, what passage are you gonna be teaching through? And I told her I'm gonna be teaching through Philippians, picking it up in verse 12. And uh, she was like, you've already preached that. And I was like, uh... Don't remember. I don't think so. I actually had gone back. We preached through Philippians, the book, as a church, all the way back in 2012. But I didn't preach this passage. Either Cal or Chris did. So I said, I I think you're wrong on this. And she says, no, I've got your notes in the margin of my Bible. You preached it at our five-year celebration. And um, as usual, I was like, you're right. And uh, I went back, and I kind of watched that service from five years ago. And uh, it was an interesting... Uh, morning or celebration for us because that's one of the few times in the history of our church we've all been able to gather in one service. So I don't know how many were there. We were at the L.C. Walker Arena. There was probably somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 people in attendance five years ago. And um, here's what I know. When I had the opportunity to address our entire church in one setting with everyone there, this is the passage that I went to to speak to the large group. So now contrast that with my teaching this morning. As I look around the room, there's three of us. There's me, Lucas, and Emo. So this is as big a contrast as you could have as you approach this passage. And uh, what I would tell you is I was pretty fired up five years ago to teach this in that full room to all those people. But as I teach this morning, there's something about this passage that I believe is just as critical for us to hear today in our difficult circumstances as it was five years ago when we looked at this text together as a church. So just to bring you up to speed, I want to remind you of some of the points that Cal made last week. He had this great passage to teach and it includes in Philippians 3, verse eight, he has this wonderful verse where Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. His big idea last week was the only safe foundation for my joy is the Lord. And he said, confidence in the flesh will not sustain you through the difficult seasons of life. And I agree with that. And so Paul is writing in Philippians 3, verse eight, and he is saying, listen, everything that I have in my life compared to knowing, becoming Christ-like, knowing my savior I count it as loss. A couple, just a phrase later in the same verse at the end of chapter, or verse 80 says this, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. That word translated as dung. If I were Eric teaching in Fremont, I'd use a different word because there's farmers up there. But, but what he's saying is everything in my life, I count as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my savior. And it's interesting that that's not some theoretical construct for Paul. That's his reality. He's suffered the loss of all things. He's sitting in a prison cell writing. And the question that I have or the feeling that I have as I listen to Paul write those things is it's, it's inspiring. Like that's who I want to be. Paul has found something that he can anchor his joy to that's greater than his circumstances or even his present reality. And there's something in me that says, I want that. C.S. Lewis said that if I constantly find myself not satisfied by the things of this world, then I must be created or meant for another world. And, And Paul has found something to anchor his joy to that it doesn't drift with the different seasons and the different tides of life. And if I'm honest with myself, that's inspiring. That's something I want. But there's another side or another response that my heart has as I read that verse. And and that response is this. If I'm honest with myself, if if we're honest with ourselves, I'm not sure I can say what Paul just said. See, what Paul just said was everything else in my life compared to knowing Christ is meaningless. Listen, God, if you need to take my health in order for me to know Christ better, take my health because Christ is better. He says, if you need to take my family in order for me to know Christ better, then take my family. If you need to take my reputation, if you need to take my security, if you need to take my comfort, everything in my life is subject to my pursuit and my desire to know Christ. And I I read that and in some ways it's inspiring, but then I've got to compare myself to what he's saying. And if I'm honest, I'm like, I I don't know that I'm there. I don't know that I'm there. So that's where we pick up our thought in verse 12. Let me just read it to you. He says this in verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And, and as I read verse 12, actually there's a little bit of relief in my spirit because what Paul just said is he goes, this is what I desire to be. But he immediately says, not that I've arrived or imperfect. And that gives me some level of peace because the reality is if Paul hasn't arrived yet, well, here, here's, here's what I would say. Here, here's a clue. If, if, if Paul can say that he hasn't arrived or he isn't perfect, I think we can be pretty confident to say that we have not arrived and we're not perfect. Actually, if you're sitting here and saying, boy, I'm surprised Paul says that because it seems like he's arrived and I've surely arrived. Well, I'm more worried about you believing that you've arrived than somebody who is still able to recognize that they're not there yet. See, my concern would be that for some of us, we have reduced our um, discipleship to Jesus or our following of Jesus to this moral construct that if I do this and if I don't do this, if I'm faithful to my wife, if I don't look at porn, if I attend church, if I have a quiet time every day, if I do these things, then I've arrived. And the problem with a moral construct or a view of our discipleship with Christ um, that looks like that, that it's based off what we are actually doing or what we can accomplish. The problem with that is what happens when you do all of those things? Now what? Because all you're left with there is selfishness and pride. And the reality is our pursuit of our relationship with Jesus Christ from, if Paul can say, I count everything, has lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, but I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect. It tells us that we also need to continue to strive. It's interesting, the first point, if you're keeping notes is this, I wanna talk a little bit about this gospel tension that shows up in this passage. But the big idea, even before I get there is this, we strive to win what's already been won. We, We strive to win what's already been won. And, and here's what it says in verse 12. It says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So there's this weird um, back and forth in the text. Paul is pressing to make something his own because Christ has made him his own. So you've got to look at the verse and say, what is the cause? What is the effect? Which took place first? And what Paul says is, he says, listen, I'm pressing to make it my own because Christ already has made it my own. One of the things that the gospel and and, and scripture is clear on is that salvation is of the Lord. We read in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, our guys will put this on the screen. It says this, it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And in some Christian circles, when I start to talk about striving to make it your own, um, all of a sudden people get nervous. There's like these caution flags that go up and say, whoa, 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 salvation is all of God. And I believe that with all of my heart. I believe strongly in the sovereignty of God that it's his grace that saves me. But the reality is we're invited into the process. Not that our efforts accomplish our salvation, but Paul is constantly challenging the New Testament follower of Jesus Christ. Hey, engage in the battle. The same thing that he's doing here in verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made it, has made me his own. The, the best way maybe that I can explain this is by means of an analogy. Um, One of the things that I get to do on occasion, particularly in the summer, is I take two of my grandsons fishing. And uh, we were out a couple of weeks ago and I was fishing with Bo, Calvin's oldest son, he's seven, and with Judah, his five-year-old. And so taking them fishing, this is what that means. I go and I get the tackle box and I put it on the boat and I make sure that the boat is filled with gas and I make sure that we've got bobbers and we've got hooks and we've got night crawlers and I get the boys all set up on the boat and we get their life preservers on and we go on the boat and I drive the boat to the spot where I think the fish are going to be and there I put the worm on their hooks and I... For some, for, for Judah, the youngest, I'll, I'll cast his line out there. And, and basically I'm doing the majority of the work. And then we set up and the three of us begin to fish. And Bo's a little bit at seven. He's, he's a little bit more self-reliant. And, and he's like, I don't want a bobber. That's for little kids. And I want to cast my own and I want to reel it in. And he can basically catch his own fish. And so he's off very committed to doing it on his own. Judah's a little bit different. He needs a little bit more help. And and quite honestly, he gets distracted a little bit easier than Bo does. So with Judah, we put the bobber on the line. We put the nightcrawler on the hook. And I I actually cast it out to where I think the fish will be. And I'm like, hey, Judah, watch the bobber. I, I need you to watch the bobber. When the Fish takes the bait, the bobber will go under and you need to pull on the rod and you need to start reeling then. And he's like, okay, okay. And so he'll watch the bobber for about five seconds. And, and, and then his mind starts to wander and it's like, hey, Bumpa, I'm, I'm hot. Or, or can I have something to drink? Or how do fish breathe? And, and, and what do fish breathe? And, and, and what if we could breathe underwater? What would that be like? And I'm like, hey, hey Judah, watch the bobber. And he'll be like, I am watching the bobber. I'm like, where is it? And he's like, whoops, it's gone. And so we reel the line back in. We put another night crawler on it. We throw it back out. And a couple seconds later, he's watching the bobber. And then it's like, hey, hey, Bumpa, can I jump in the water? Would it be okay if I swam for a while? It's like, sure, Judah, just swim for a while. And then he comes back and he's watching the line. And I look at him and I go, hey, Judah, where's the bobber? And he looks and he's like, huh! and a fish is taken at the bobber's go in the other direction from the boat. A fish is pulling on it. So he'll grab the pole and he'll start to reel real hard. And as he reels, all of a sudden his hands are up here. And I'm like, hey, Judah, there's no reason you got to reel the rod up there. You can just kind of pull it down and reel. And, and I kind of help him and he gets the fish in. And once we get the fish in and I take it off the hook and then I hand it to him and he holds it. And he's so proud of the fish that he caught. And a few minutes later, we'll be fishing and this is going on and on. I'm untangling his line. I'm helping Bo. I'm helping Judah. And he'll go, hey, Bumpa, how many fish have you caught? And I'll be like, well, between everything else I'm doing, I've, I don't say that. I said, I've, I, I caught two fish. And he'll be like, I've caught six. Hey, hey Bumpa, you're not that good a fisherman. Like, like I'm, a, I'm a pretty good fisherman. And, and it's funny, we'll go back into the house and we'll be sitting at dinner. And it's like, uh, his parents will say, how'd fishing go? And it's like, it went great. I was the best fisherman. I caught the most fish. And from, from my position as the grandfather, I've got to kind of laugh at that. And I, and I believe over time, I hope over time, that as he gets a little bit older, he'll understand that um, part of his success was that I was putting him in a position to be successful. And, and, and when I think of that picture... I kind of think of God and and there are times that we think we're doing so much. We're watching the bobber and we're pulling the line to get the fish in. But the reality is God has orchestrated the whole situation on our behalf. Our, our, Our salvation looks a lot like us watching the bobber and God's invited us into the process of fishing and he's saying listen reel it in give effort don't don't just not fish but i've invited you into the process that i've already preordained and the reason that i've done it is for my glory but it's also for your joy so understand the gospel tension that though our salvation is a free gift that we couldn't earn for ourselves. It is Jesus in our place doing what we could not do. The reality is that God has still invited us into the process and he's calling us to strive alongside to what Paul calls in verse 12, to press, to make it our own. Then look at verse 13, he says this, he says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, so you gotta remember, Paul's a church planter. He's a preacher. And it's interesting in the text, what he does is he says, there's one thing I do. And then he gives you three things that he does because that's what preachers do. We, we trick you. We say there's one more point, but then we give you three more things. And and it's interesting in what he's doing here. It's actually one thought, but you can divide it into three different steps. Paul is saying, here's the one thing that he does. And he says, this is how I deal with my past. This is how I hope focus on the future. And this is what I am doing in the present. So the one thing that he's doing has three components. It has a past component, a future component, and a current component. Components. So let me just break these down. Here's, here's the first thing that we see, the first thing of the three things that he does under this heading, one thing. There's one key thing, three parts. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. So I'm thinking about this. Paul, in the passage that Cal looked at last week, one of the things that he did is he kind of gave his resume. And and if you look back at Paul's life, he was zealous for righteousness. He says that I was a student of the law. He was a Pharisee. He, He was committed to personal holiness and to the point where he's able to say as to the law and as to righteousness, he was blameless. So there's some things, there's some accomplishments in Paul's past that he could focus on as he reminisces about what he's done or what he's accomplished over the course of his walk with Jesus Christ. And he's saying what he does is he forgets what lies behind. And in forgetting what lies behind, he says, I need to put my accomplishments in the past, not in my current thinking, because I don't want to be distracted with what I've accomplished in the past as I move forward. It's interesting as I've gotten a little bit older, there are are times when I'm a little tired. I've been doing church ministry. I've been at this church as a a pastor for 10 years. But before that, my entire life, I've been involved in church ministry all the way back into grade school and junior high. I was the janitor at the church and I worked with younger kids and I worked in youth group. And this has been my whole life. And, And there are seasons where based off the level of effort in the past or past accomplishments, it might be easy for me to say, you know what? Let somebody else have a turn. Let somebody else have a turn. In, in our culture, you you work for a while and then you get to retire. You get to leave that and enjoy your retirement years. Well, the reality is though you can retire from your um, profession, you really are never invited to retire from your pressing pursuit of Jesus Christ. Now, Now, it changes over seasons. I I believe that I'm entering in a season where at our church, the younger guys have taken the reins. They're doing more of the leadership, and I'm in more of a cheerleading role than I ever was as an active leader before. But the reality is, though it changes, I am called to not rest on past accomplishments but continue to press forward. It's not just past accomplishments that can get in your way. Another thing in forgetting our past is that for many of us, when we look back over the course of our lives, what we often remember is not our accomplishments, but it's our failures. And if we're not careful, it's past failures that begin to complicate or create problems for us or hurdles for us in our current pursuit of Jesus Christ. And and, and let me explain, guilt can be a very, very powerful thing. And as we look back over our life and we look at the places where we've fallen short or the things that we've done, it would very be very easy for us to say, listen, I understand what Paul's saying. I understand his pursuit and that Christ is his consuming passion. And I understand that the grace of God reaches Paul because it says that, God has made him his own, but maybe you question whether the grace of God is for you based off things in your past. And and Cal touched on this last week. He reminded us that before Paul was ever Paul, he was this guy named Saul. And you can read about him back in Acts 7 through 9. And and it says in Acts 7 that when Stephen, uh, one of the early church founders and a martyr for the gospel, when, when he was preaching and about to be martyred and that he began to be stoned, Saul was on the scene. He was taking the coats of the Pharisees that were casting the stones. In essence, Saul was there. He was giving his approval. He was in essence saying, hey, listen, let me hold your coat so you can throw the stones at this man harder. That was in his past. In, in chapter eight of Acts, we read in Acts 8.3, it says that Paul in his Time has Saul, he was ravaging the church. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way or any followers of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so listen, Paul was not following orders in his persecution of the early church, he was seeking out opportunities to persecute the early church. And he was willing to travel far and wide to find people that had confessed to be followers of Jesus Christ, bind them, imprison them, bring them back to Jerusalem where they would be tried, sometimes tortured and often murdered men, women, families, children. This is who Saul was. And and maybe just maybe has Paul writes here to the Philippian Church as he sits in prison in Rome, reflecting on his past. Could it be that Paul is looking back on his past and saying, Man, there's some regrets, there's some guilt, there's some shame. There's some things in my past that I'm not proud of? It's interesting. first Timothy, chapter one, verse thirteen, he says, Paul says, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel. And then it goes on in verse 16, it says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal right life. Paul is proof that you cannot be outside the reach of the grace of God. And it's amazing to me that, Paul, that God would choose in his sovereignty to use Paul as a minister of the gospel to the early church because he is so far on the extremes, righteous as a Pharisee, but yet a persecutor of the church that none of us are outside the boundaries of what Paul has experienced. And you say, David, you don't know what I've done. Okay, have you, have you murdered people? Like, like how many? Have you Sought out? Have you woke up angry every day? Have you, with hostility, sought to imprison? Like, like, listen. You're minor leagues. You're able compared to the sin and the hostility that Paul was involved in. What Paul does is he says, "Listen, I'm going to forget that past." As a matter of fact, what he does is he lets the shortcomings and failures of his past be used as a testament to the far-reaching grace and love of God. So in order to press on, you need to leave your past accomplishments in the past. You need to leave your failures in the past. Here's Just one more thing quickly, not only your accomplishments, but your mountaintops. Paul had some pretty big mountaintops in his walk with Christ. He heard the audible voice of Jesus Christ when he was on the road to Damascus, when he was saved. He spoke to him like Paul has heard the voice of God. And then we're told later that Paul was actually transported into the third heavens. We're not even sure what that means. Sounds great though, right? So so Paul can look back on his life. He's performed miracles. People are healed just by touching his handkerchief. Like there have been mountaintop experiences in Paul's past, but he says, listen, I'm not hanging my hope on past accomplishments. I'm not letting my hope be destroyed or squashed by past failures. And I'm not holding on to pass mountaintops. And my fear would be that sometimes nostalgia can be the the very enemy of our current pursuit of Christ. And there could be some here in our church that are looking back and saying, I remember that time 10 years ago when I was so on fire for the Lord, or I remember when God showed up in my life in such a incredibly tangible way. And you're looking back on past mountaintops and you're resting on that when the reality is there's no current pursuit. There's no current passion For the things of Christ today. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. And then he says this I'm, I'm straining forward forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So now he's not dealing with his past, he's actually dealing with the future, what his focus is. That word straining there, the best way that I could explain it or translate it for you from the Greek is it brings to mind a runner who is stretching every muscle to its maximum in order to reach a finish line, to win the prize, to achieve the goal. Paul will write to the Corinthian church that he is um, training his body like an athlete, not some, you know, weekend warrior, but I'm talking a professional athlete who his entire life is fine tuned to to win the prize that he is training for. Paul says that he beats his body like a boxer. He he takes his body as a slave in his efforts to pursue Christ, and he's straining forward looking ahead, trying to reach a goal. And what I would say is one of the things that Paul realizes and this text reminds us is godliness doesn't happen by accident. Nobody wakes up next Thursday and all of a sudden they're godly. What Paul is saying is is it's gonna take effort. It's going to take training. It's going to take stretching of who you are in order to achieve the goal of godliness. And in this season, In this difficult season where we can't gather, I would just challenge you, we're doing everything we can to put content online to continue to help you develop your walk with Jesus Christ and your spiritual disciplines. But the reality that we know is if our church is like most churches, what research tells us is that half of our church isn't even tuning in anymore on Sunday mornings. And my question is, are you striving Because we're in a season where it's not easy, it's difficult. We can't spoon feed you, your spiritual development or spiritual disciplines. And the reality is it's way more work to achieve godliness when you're swimming against the stream rather than coasting with the stream. And I would challenge you in this season, be intentional, be straining, to achieve this incredible prize, which is, we'll see it in a minute, the upward calling of Jesus Christ. Paul has his eyes towards the future. He's looking for the day when Jesus Christ comes back. But even more than that, he's looking ahead and saying, who do I wanna be in a month, a year, five years, 10 years? Because the reality is for many of us, if we're not careful and if we're not intentional, uh, we're not living life, life's relieving us. And and we get to the end of the road and what we have is rather than a sense of, man, I see God in every step along the way. The reality is what we're gonna have is regrets that we didn't strive hard enough. Paul's very, very conscious of what the future holds. And then he says this, just as a third thing. See it in the text. He talks about pressing, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That that word pressing, it's most often used in the Greek as regarding a a hunt or a pursuit or a war. And, And it's interesting because there's a juxtaposition in the text, what Paul is actually saying. He's saying, I press down. I, 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 I keep my nose down. I, I, I'm focused on the task at hand. I press down because of the upward call of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He, he's, he's got a mark that he has set his eyes on. He will not take his eyes off the target. He is pressing on towards the goal of the upward call of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's going to come a day, and I'm so thankful for this, we're promised it in Hebrews 4, there comes a day when we will enter into a season of rest. We've got all eternity to rest. But what Paul is saying in this season, his consuming passion is that he will press, he will strive, he will forget what's in the past in an effort to achieve the prize and the prizes to know Jesus Christ to the fullest extent possible, to make him his consuming passion. Then in verse 15, it closes and says this, says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So Paul says, hey, this is the way the mature follower of Jesus Christ thinks. And if you're not thinking this way, it is my prayer that God will make it evident to you. Listen, this is, this is a different room today than it was five years ago. When I spoke five years, I, I could look out across the room and see so many faces and so many people that are um, engaged in the pursuit of Christ. They were celebrating that wonderful morning as we celebrated five years. And, and what I reminded them, some of them by name in the room, hey. How has God shown up in your life? What, what are the things that he has done in your life? What is the change that you see over the past five years that we can give glory to God for? Well, I'm not looking at faces right now. I'm looking at a camera, but I would ask you the same thing. Are, are you able to look back and say that because of God's grace and because of my pursuit of godliness, God is at work in my life. I can see it in the past and I can see it now. And if not, what are you gonna do about it? Paul's challenging us. He says, listen, this is the time when we strain. This is the time when we press. This is the way the mature followers of Jesus Christ pursue their savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this reminder. And um, I would just say that this morning, my heart is different than five years ago where last time I preached this passage, it was more celebration. There's some desperation in my heart this morning because I know that there are people that are just struggling. And uh, this season where we can't gather, where we're trying to model submission, man, it, it, it takes its toll if we're honest. And I pray for those who are discouraged. I pray for those who are feeling like they're stagnating. I pray for those who are just struggling. Father, make yourself real. Restore the joy of our salvation. Keep us plowing forward, keep us striving, keep us pressing. Because the thing that we hold on to, the thing that we know to be true, is that you're worth it. It's in your name we pray, amen.